I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this is a special podcast for several reasons. First of all, happy Constitution Day. As uh, you may know, it was on September 17, 1787, that the Constitution was signed. And on this Constitution Day, we are celebrating with a really exciting launch. Dear We the People listeners, as part of our Constitution Day festivities, we are unveiling our new interactive Constitution app for Apple and Android uh, users. You can download the app by going to your app store and searching for interactive Constitution. And there you can read the mobile version of our interactive Constitution with essays by the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America about every clause of the Constitution. I am so excited, my friends, to report that over the summer, we launched 79 essays about the structural Constitution. That's 29 separate provisions with the common statements and separate statements. It is a constitutional feast. I've been learning so much just by uh, browsing through these clauses, and you will too. And if that's not Enough, we're launching today our new series on the candidates in the Constitution. And from now on through, through Election Day, we will compare the statements and proposals of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump with the text and history of the Constitution. We begin today with Article 2, which outlines the qualifications and duties of the President of the United States, and will continue in coming weeks with Article 3 regarding the judiciary, Article 5 regarding constitutional amendments, as well as Amendments 1 two, and four, and more. It's really going to be a wonderful exercise in constitutional education. And joining me to launch this thrilling series are two of America's leading legal scholars, both of whom have contributed essays to the interactive constitution that are now live. Mike Ramsey is Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and Director of International and Comparative Law Programs at the University of San Diego School of Law. He's a contributor to the Interactive Constitution, in particular Article 2, Section 2, which is the Commander-in-Chief Clause, and Article uh, 1, Section 8, which is the Declare War Clause. And Chris Schroeder is Charles S. Murphy Professor of Law and Public Policy Studies and co-director of the Program in Public Law at Duke Law School. He's also a contributor to the Interactive Constitution and has written a compelling a common statement and separate statement on the vesting clause, which is Article 2, Section 1. Mike, Chris, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, yes. Likewise, I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks. Wonderful. Well, let us jump right in with uh, uh, the candidates' proposals on Guantanamo. We had a good podcast on Guantanamo uh, last week, and we're going to now dig in. Um, uh, the question is, what independent authority does the Commander-in-Chief Clause, Article 2, Section 2, and the Vesting Clause, Article 2, Section 1, give the president to close Guantanamo? Donald Trump has said that he would not close Guantanamo. Instead, he would keep it open and would load up the detention center with what he's called bad dudes. Um, and as for uh, Hillary Clinton, she is closed for calling Guantanamo. Over the years, Guantanamo has inspired more terrorists than it has imprisoned, she said. That's why I backed closing Guantanamo as a senator and when I ran for president in 2008. Mike, let me begin with you. Uh, Trump has said that he would keep Guantanamo open, loaded up with bad dudes. Would those proposed actions be lawful as unilateral executive action? Would he need to cooperate with Congress on certain actions? Could he create additional gitmos? And if that's not enough, how does that square with your great essays on Article 2 on the Interactive Constitution? Uh, well, I do think the president has the authority to uh, create uh, prison facilities for people that are captured in combat. Uh, I'm not sure what bad dudes uh, Mr. Trump has in mind, but as long as they're enemy combatants, uh, I do think, um, subject to uh, certain uh, minimal due process requirement, uh, requirements, that uh, the president would have the authority, presence of law for a long time, use the commander in chief authority um, to uh, uh, to hold prisoners captured uh, in wartime operations, and that uh, power was recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court um, in Hamdi versus Rumsfeld. So I think he does have that authority. The presidents have exercised that authority. Uh, 
Bush, Obama, and whoever uh, comes after, I think will continue to do so. Thank you very much for that. Chris, do you agree or disagree? And what do you think of uh, Secretary Clinton's call for closing Guantanamo? Uh, and is that uh, consistent with the president's authority under Article 2 of the Constitution? Yes, I agree with Mike in the way he's um, expressed it with respect to the president's authority as commander-in-chief to detain uh, lawful combatants for the duration of hostilities, and you need a place to be able to do that. Guantanamo is such a place. There aren't any congressional restrictions on adding people to Guantanamo. So I think that that is... Um, uh, he and I agree on that. I think uh, Secretary Clinton's proposal to close it is trickier because Congress has imposed statutory restrictions that um, make it very difficult to um, evacuate the facility. Uh, there are prohibitions currently on bringing anyone from Guantanamo into the United States so that you couldn't simply move those people you wish to continue to detain into some military brig at Charleston, for instance, which has been one of the proposals, uh, without running afoul of that constitutional, uh, of the statutory provision. And there are severe restrictions on being able to um, transfer or um, release detainees into third-party countries absent very strong um, restrictions that the Secretary of Defense would have to certify with respect to the, um, the lack of substantial risk of those individuals returning to the battlefield. Uh, so I think the Secretary uh, would, assuming that those statutory restrictions remain in place, would run into the same difficulties that President Obama has had trying to close Guantanamo under those same restrictions for the past um, three-plus years. I forget exactly when they were put into place. I know there have been some arguments made that the president um, would have authority to override those statutory restrictions if he thought it was uh, fundamental to prosecuting the war or for purposes of establishing better foreign relations with foreign countries. Uh, it's often said that Guantanamo is a, a diplomatic disaster for the United States uh, with our allies, among others. Um, President Obama, I think, has his lawyers have considered those arguments, uh, and um, I think that the lack of they're taking um, steps to do that on the basis of the president's unilateral authority is some indication of what they think the answer to that question is, namely that um, at least under the current circumstances, I think I would incline to agree with the conclusion that the, the statutory provisions are valid. The president would have to uh, comply with them. So a President Clinton, in order to, to close Guantanamo, would need to work with Congress to, to remove those statutory restrictions on her authority. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let us turn now to the war on ISIS, and uh, the relevant constitutional clauses are Article 1, Section 8, the Declare War Clause, and the Vesting and Commander-in-Chief Clauses in Article 2. And let's begin with uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, on the Fox show, uh, Bill O'Reilly asked Trump if he would seek a declaration of war from Congress against ISIS, and Trump said, I would, I would, this is war. If you look at it, this is war coming from all different parts. He reiterated his belief that we have to be tough and his view that the U.S. should reverse its decision to allow Syrian refugees into the country. Mike, do you interpret that statement to suggest that Trump thinks that the president cannot act unilaterally without a declaration of war, and is such a declaration required uh, for a presidential action? Uh, well, I can't speak for Mr. Trump, although uh, I suspect that he would be willing to act unilaterally if the opportunity arose, uh, just based somewhat on his personality. Uh, but sticking to the Constitution, um, in, in my view, uh, and, and uh, uh, I, I was uh, pleased to be invited to uh, uh, write the declaration of war, uh, the, 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 sorry, the Declare War Clause section of the Interaction Active Constitution. So you can read my views in more detail there, along with uh, Professor Steve Vladek, 
uh, we wrote that uh, the essay on that. Uh, I do think that uh, first of all, I think Constitution the Constitution requires congressional authorization of some sort um, for a campaign such as our campaign against ISIS. Um, I think that I agree with Trump that that uh, constitutes a war in the constitutional sense. Uh, and thus con- a congressional authorization is required. I do not think um, that that authorization needs to come in the form of a formal declaration of war, uh, because uh, throughout history, uh, including going all the way back to the almost to the founding era, um, Congress has provided authorization in other ways through, uh, through statutory authorization uh, rather than a formal declaration. But I do think that some form of authorization is required. Um, uh, however, uh, President Obama contends um, that existing statutes are sufficient um, to authorize the campaign against ISIS uh, and that um, no further authorization is required. Uh, in particular, he says that the uh, 2001 authorization for the use of military force uh, against al-Qaeda and the other uh, groups that were involved with 9-11 um, is sufficient to authorize the ISIS uh, conflict, and that's what we're operating under um, right now. Uh, I, I think that that claim is a little thin, uh, given that ISIS did not exist at the time that, uh, uh, that uh, 9-11 occurred, uh, and that ISIS, although at one point was uh, part of al-Qaeda, is now disavowed that connection and operates independently. Uh, so for that reason, uh, although the, uh, the law is not entirely clear here, I think it would be better uh, if Congress would take uh, affirmative, uh, make an affirmative move to provide some sort of authorization for the president. It would set this conflict on a more secure constitutional ground. Uh, and if Congress wanted to go all the way to issuing a, declare, a declaration of war, a formal declaration of war, uh, then I think that would be entirely consistent with Congress's role uh, under the Constitution. And so I, I think it's a, a wise thing to call for. Thank you very much for that. Uh, listeners, I do want you to go to the Interactive Constitution and read uh, Professor Ramsey's description of the declare war uh, clause. Uh, that's the homework for this podcast, but it's so rich and it'll give texture to this really important uh, discussion. Uh, Chris, Secretary Clinton has said that the U.S. is already at war against radical jihadists who use Islam to recruit and radicalize others in order to pursue their evil agenda. She said in 2015 that to support troops from Iraq and around the region, the U.S. should immediately deploy the special operations force President Obama has already authorized and be prepared to deploy more as more Syrians get into the fight. Uh, 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 By contrast, her vice presidential candidate, uh, Tim Kaine, was a strong voice for the need uh, for the next president to seek a congressional declaration of war in the Syrian context uh, and and pushed Congress to take up an ISIS-specific war bill, a proposal he offered last year with Senator Jeff Flake, uh, Republican of Arizona. So, Chris, is it your sense that Secretary Clinton is taking the same position as President Obama, that no declaration of war beyond the authorization of force uh, is necessary? And do you believe that that position is consistent with the Constitution or not? Yes, I do. It does seem to me that she's taking a position very similar to President Obama's. Um, she may be relying in part on the 2002 authorization with respect to Iraq as well. Um, so this, both of these provisions, of course, were passed. The, the AUMF was passed immediately in the aftermath of September 11. The Iraq resolution came along a little bit later. And the problem that Mike is alluding to um, in his response with respect to Mr. Trump is that we're now 15 years past 9-11, and there are are continuing and increasing questions as to how long uh, that authorization is effective against groups that um, have metastasized, if you will, out of the original al-Qaeda. And now, in the case of ISIS, which at one point in time was al-Qaeda in Iraq, a a definite um, ally of of core al-Qaeda, which was led by bin Laden, has now become hostile and antagonistic to core al-Qaeda. How long does an authorization that allows the United States to go after um, the people who perpetrated the attack on September 11th, plus their associated forces, allow you to continue down the trail of these increasingly uh, complicated and complex relationships? 
I don't think we've faced a question like this under any of the previous authorizations to use military force, whether they be a declaration of war or some statutory form um, in the past. And I think it, it, the longer or the more aged those two early 2000s provisions become, the stronger the argument gets uh, that a, a new authorization relevant to the circumstances that we face today uh, will become necessary. Now, whether we're at that point or not is very difficult to say. Um, as I say, I think it's a novel question that we haven't faced in our past, but it does seem to me that just on the basis of their um, public remarks, Secretary Clinton, who, after all, was Secretary of State under President Obama and was part of the debates on a lot of these internal issues and their legal justifications, is probably taking President Obama's position and sticking to it, at least for the time being. Um, and the public claims of, of Mr. Trump would seem to be that he thinks a new declaration is necessary, although I certainly am in the same company with Mike and not wanting to uh, pretend to understand the full nuances of uh, Mr. Trump's positions on issues like this. Thank you so much for that. Uh, let us turn now to immigration, and the relevant clauses are uh, Article 2, Section 3, the, the Take Care Clause that requires that the president take care of the laws are faithfully executed, as well as Congress's power over immigration in Article 1, Section 8. Uh, Mike, let's begin with Mr. Trump. Uh, when asked whether he would use executive orders uh, to implement his immigration program rather than going to Congress, he said, I won't refuse it. I'm going to do a lot of things. Uh, I mean, he's led the way, to be honest with you. He said, referring to President Obama, but I'm going to use that much better, and they're going to serve a better purpose. In, on June 13th, uh, reacting to the Orlando shootings, Mr. Trump said the immigration laws of the United States give the president powers to suspend entry into the country of any class of persons. Now, any class, it really is determined and to be determined by the president for the interest of the United States, and it's as he or she deems it appropriate. And finally, he said in a radio interview, the president has the right to ban any group or anybody that he feels is going to do harm to our country. They have an absolute right. And so the president of the country has the right to do this. Mike, what do you think of those statements? And are they consistent with the Constitution as you understand it? Well, as I understand, the, the I am not an immigration law specialist, but as I understand the way immigration law is currently understood, uh, it is very comprehensively regulated by Congress. Um, and I, I think the, the assumption, the understanding that underlies the way we think about immigration law is that, um, that Congress has essentially a plenary power uh, over immigration, uh, and um, that, that, so that is squarely within Congress's power um, and, and not the president's. Uh, now, uh, it's unclear to me from what Trump has said about immigration um, whether he thinks that the, that the existing immigration laws give the president very broad power um, to act or whether he thinks he can act um, independently of Congress. Um, if it's the former, I think he's on fairly strong ground because uh, my, my understanding of the immigration laws is that they do convey, although they, they, the ultimate power rests in Congress, that the laws that Congress has actually passed convey quite a large amount of discretion um, on the president. Um, if, the, if, he, if, if Trump is saying that he can uh, uh, act in immigration without congressional approval or even uh, contrary to uh, what Congress has directed, then uh, I think that's much more problematic. Now, my view is that the original understanding uh, of immigration may give the president more power um, than our modern understanding, but I think that that's, uh, that, that's something that uh, has, has passed and that we're not in that world anymore, uh, and that we're in a world of, uh, of really plenary congressional control over immigration. So, um, so I, I would say that to the extent that uh, Trump is um, purporting to act without congressional authorization or contrary to it, um, that, that he's on uh, very shaky ground. Uh, but I'm not sure that that is, in fact, what he's saying. Thank you for that. Uh, Chris, you can, you can chime in on uh, Mike's comments on uh, Mr. Trump's proposals, but I want to focus on Secretary Clinton's. In May 2015, she said she strongly supported President Obama's immigration-related executive actions and said, quote, he had to act in the face of inaction. 
Uh, Secretary Clinton said, I want to reiterate my strong support for the president's executive actions because he had to act in the face of an action that was not on the merit, but politically motivated for partisan reasons. She said she would do everything possible under the law to go even further than President Obama's immigration-related executive actions. If Congress doesn't act, the secretary said, I will stop. I will fight to stop partisan attacks on the executive actions that would put the dreamers, including those with us today, at risk of deportation. And if Congress continues to refuse to act as president, I will do everything possible under the law to go even further. Are those proposals consistent with the Constitution as you understand it and as the Supreme Court has interpreted it? Well, it's hard to say what she means by go even further. And until we know that, it's a little difficult to evaluate. But the actions that President Obama has taken are fairly bold all by themselves. And currently, they've been stayed by a lawsuit brought by Texas and other states and then upheld by the Fifth Circuit. So they're not going into effect uh, until there's further uh, court action on them that would uh, clear the way for it. Those legal challenges have not been on constitutional grounds. The, the injunction that was entered against the program was entered because of an allegation sustained by the trial court that um, the Department of Homeland Security had not gone through the notice and comment rulemaking procedure that, that in the court's opinion, was required for the action. It was simply a set of directives issued by the Department of Homeland Security instead of providing the public an opportunity to comment on a proposal and have it officially promulgated uh, through that Administrative Procedure Act process. Um, I am of the, the view that as a constitutional matter, what the president is doing with its, his immigration action is um, simply a, a, an instance of a fairly aggressive form of statutory interpretation. As Mike said, the immigration laws are very complicated, and I don't purport to be an expert on them either. But they do grant a lot of discretion to the Department of Homeland Security in implementing them. And if you read the directives in the memoranda that surround the president's immigration action, um, they are constructed as an exercise by the secretary of that discretion that Congress has bestowed by statute. Now, it may be an erroneous statutory interpretation, in which case it will be struck down by the courts on that ground. But because the president did not assert a unilateral authority to issue these uh, directives, even if they're contrary to statute, but instead... Um, implemented them in the form of an interpretation of the existing statutes. I think no one in his administration is asserting the kind of power of the president to fly in the face of a statutory prohibition. And I'm not taking what Secretary Clinton is saying on the campaign trail as, as doing that either. But once again, it's hard to tell until she clarifies what she means by go even further than the president has. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, let us turn now more broadly to the question of the domestic use of executive orders. Uh, both candidates have suggested that they would uh, be rather robust in the use of these executive orders. Um, Mike, uh, Mr. Trump has said that he would right away use executive orders to unsign previous executive orders President Obama has issued. In the first 100 days, we're going to knock the hell out of Obamacare. You know, the great thing about executive orders is that I don't have to go back to Congress. I just sit down. I will be unsigning many, maybe not all. Maybe there's a couple of good ones. I don't know. I doubt it. But we're going to be unsigning a lot of executive orders. And the Washington Post has noted that the Republican nominee has led some to conclude he intends a sweeping expansion of presidential authority. His rhetoric implies a muscular, almost unitary presidency that would be at least as expansive as what historian Arthur Schlesinger famously dubbed the imperial presidency. Uh, based on these statements and your understanding of Mr. Trump's uh, views toward executive order, um, w w would he go further than President Obama or not? And, and would his actions be, be consistent with the Constitution? Well, uh, again, with some of these things, it, it, it's difficult to know what specifics they're talking about, and the specifics may matter very much in assessing the constitutionality. On the question of executive orders, um, I, I agree with Trump that uh, 
in general, uh, an executive order uh, doesn't have the force of law. Um, it, it's just an order, for example, to uh, people in the executive branch, uh, and that typically uh, what one president can order, uh, another president can unorder. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have any binding effect um, on future presidents. So I, I think, in terms of uh, repealing executive orders, or repealing is not the right word because that implies sort of a legislative content to it. Um, the, uh, overturning or reversing or withdrawing executive orders. Um, that that is something as a general matter uh, that the uh, uh, that the president can do. Uh, with respect to uh, Obamacare, uh, I, I just frankly don't know what he's talking about because I, I don't know that Obamacare is generally been implemented through executive orders. Uh, now, it may be that he's talking about uh, administrative action through executive agencies. Um, and as a, as a general matter, uh, an, an administrative action can be revisited uh, by the executive agency that, it, that issued it in the first place, and the president uh, can uh, direct that the, admin, that the agency reconsider uh, an action. Um, there may be some uh, non-constitutional statutory limits through things such as the Administrative Procedure Act um, that govern how an administrative agency um, would reconsider a position um, that it has taken. But uh, as, as a general matter, um, I, I think it could be. Um, so I'm not sure that I see specifics um, of... Uh, sort of a, uh, a, a an imperial presidency building behind all this, although it's possible. Uh, the, what what I would say about executive orders is that it, it's very important to understand that um, that a constitutional executive order um, ha- has to either arise from the president's independent constitutional authority, which, when it comes to domestic matters, is not that great, apart from running the executive branch, um, or it has to arise from a statutory authorization. Um, that's either already in place or that Congress grants. But as long as it does those, um, then it, it, it should be perfectly fine. Um, if maybe I could say just one comment on uh, what uh, was said before about uh, immigration, um, I agree that, uh, and this illustrates what I'm, what I'm talking about here, I'm, I, I agree that uh, if, if President Obama promise, uh, orders on um, the uh, uh, allowing certain uh, types of uh, immigrants to stay, um, if that's authorized by statute, um, then uh, that then it's fine. And and if it's not authorized by statute, uh, that may raise a statutory problem as being as being discussed in the pending case. But I think to the extent that it is not authorized by statute, um, it also raises a constitutional problem um, because to the extent that the president is purporting to take actions that have the force of law um, by conveying legal status upon certain types of certain categories of immigrants who would not otherwise have that status, um, then the president is uh, arguably unilaterally changing the law um, through an executive order or similar action. Um, and, and that's what raises uh, the, the constitutional concern, uh, both specifically on the immigration uh, issue and, and more generally with respect to what uh, Trump has said about executive orders, is that when the president purports to change the law, um, if the president purports to change the law um, through uh, executive orders or, or other sorts of executive action, then we really have the president um, as a lawmaker um, rather, rather than the president as an executive. And, and that then becomes fundamentally con- contrary to our constitutional structure um, that gives the legislative power to Congress, subject, of course, to Congress's ability to delegate it back to the president and administrative agencies. Uh, thank you for all that. Uh, Chris, any responses uh, to what Mike just said are welcome, as are your thoughts on Secretary Clinton's views on executive power. Uh, as the Wall Street Journal has reported, she too has talked tough on using uh, executive agencies to achieve her policy goals. She's pitched ideas to crack down on uh, uh, corporate excesses, uh, maneuvers that shift companies' legal address- addresses outside the U.S. to lower tax bills. She says if Congress won't shut them down, she would use regulations to stop companies from gaming the system. She's made similar comments about unilateral executive power to accomplish her objectives, not only on immigration, but also climate change in instances where Congress refuses or fails to act. Do you believe that these proposals for unilateral executive action are consistent with the Constitution or not? Well, I'm on the fundamental questions of executive orders and executive power. I'm quite in agreement with with, uh, Mike. Um, They only operate 
as guidelines within a particular administration's executive branch so that changing them when there's a change of administration or unsigning them, as Mr. Trump colorfully uh, puts it, um, will do the trick with respect to an executive order. But you simply um, promulgate something that says that whatever the number is, the executive order has no further force and effect. Um, but I also agree with him that much of what the President Obama has announced publicly during his administration and the immigration actions are an example, haven't in fact taken place through executive orders. They've taken place as a result of agencies taking action uh, purporting to implement statutes. Those two can be changed, uh, but there may be a more complicated administrative process for changing them in a new administration. Now, what what Secretary Clinton has said um, largely, I think, falls into the same kind of analysis that Mike suggests. If there is a statute on the books, like the Internal Revenue Code, that provides some discretion in interpreting a provision of the existing code that could tighten up the ability of uh, companies to avoid taxes by um, shipping um, production overseas or in other ways avoiding U.S. regulations, it would be within the authority of the Internal Revenue Service to interpret the statute that way if there were grounds for doing so. If there's a statutory, if there's a statute that restricts the authority of the IRS to make that interpretation, then I agree with Mike. If the president tried to do that by, by executive order, he or she would be purporting to change the law through executive action that would be making him or her a lawmaker, which the, would be contrary to the structure of the Constitution. Those statutory changes to statutes have to be enacted by Congress. It's only when the Congress, in enacting a statute, gives discretionary interpretive authority to the executive branch and the president that the president has latitude to make just changes in policy by making changes in interpretation. Uh, thanks uh, very much for that. So uh, step back, if you will, uh, uh, both of you, and reflect on uh, Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton's approach to executive power more broadly. Uh, commentators on both sides of the aisle have warned that both candidates uh, have an unusually robust vision of executive power. Mike Tanner in the National Review said if there's one single sentence in Donald Trump's acceptance speech that summed up his entire campaign, it was this, I alone can fix it. And he says that Secretary Clinton also uh, is a candidate who promises to expand executive power to as yet unseen dimensions, promising to go further than President Obama on immigration, despite the fact that these orders have been struck down in the courts. Um, Mike, do you believe that uh, Mr. Trump or Secretary Clinton have uh, similarly expansive views of executive power, or, 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 there, or are there, do you see differences between them, and do you believe that their visions of executive power uh, exceed the Constitution? Yeah, well, thank you for that question, because I, I think it allows me to, to, to say something that, that I want to say in general terms about uh, the, the discussion of executive power in the campaign and in the Obama administration, and and also perhaps say something. Uh, I feel like here we're, we've, been, uh, we've been agreeing with the candidates and agreeing with each other uh, a fair amount, so hmm. perhaps I'll say something that, um, that might be a little bit more controversial. But um, I think when you examine some of the specific uh, proposals of the candidates, uh, that, as we've been doing, um, it, it, it's hard to find sort of a, a, a red flag that stands out as where they're being irresponsible. But uh, I, I do think that there has been uh, quite a bit of what I would characterize as irresponsible rhetoric uh, on executive power uh, from both candidates and from the current president as well um, regarding this idea that if Congress doesn't act, then somehow it falls to the president as a result of that congressional inaction um, to uh, to be the leader and and to uh, implement policies um, on on their own on the on the president's own accord. Um, that that idea of the presidency simply misunderstands how the separation of powers system and the checks and balances that we have works. 
Congress is not obligated to do anything. It's up to Congress to decide whether uh, legislative action needs to be taken or not. And if Congress concludes, for whatever reason, um, that legislative action does not need to be uh, taken, that doesn't open the door for the president to act unilaterally. Instead, the president has to continue to act within the president's executive power, which is to implement the laws that exist as they currently stand. Now, in foreign policy, it's a little bit different because the president has more independent power in foreign policy. But when we're talking about domestic policy, um, the, the president is fundamentally um, the, the implementer, the, the executor, the administrator um, of the laws that Congress chooses to pass. Uh, and this idea that somehow um, a, a slowdown in Congress uh, or even a gridlock in Congress is in itself empowering of the president is, I think, uh, simply, uh, as I said, irresponsible. That is not the way our system works. And indeed, to some extent, the checks and balances system um, contemplates the idea of gridlock. It is, it is gridlock that preserves our liberties um, because, um, because Congress cannot act um, without getting a large number of people to act in concert. Um, and certainly the single person of the president cannot act against our liberties um, without getting the accord of um, the, uh, the, the deliberative body of Congress. So, so I just would push very, back very hard uh, against this idea um, that the president somehow gains power um, as a result of inaction by Congress. Thank you for that uh, statement very much. Chris, do you agree with Mike that the president does not gain power as a result of inaction with Congress? Do you have a different reading of the vesting clause, uh, uh, which you wrote about uh, in Article 2, Section uh, 1 of the Interactive Constitution, and says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States? Uh, and if that's not enough, maybe you can compare and contrast the visions of executive power of Trump and Clinton and say whether you think they're consistent with the Constitution. Well, um Mike threw down, down the gauntlet to pick a fight. I'd love to be able to pick it up, but I essentially agree with him. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot do that. I, I think he's absolutely right. There's nothing in the phenomenon of the Congress failing to address a problem that gives the president more authority than he or she would otherwise have. Uh, I think both candidates are trying to paint a picture of themselves as activist, robust, problem-solving individuals in part because that's what we, the electorate, expect our presidents to do, to solve problems. They're, they're the, the singular individual at the apex of government that we can most easily hold responsible for inaction. President Obama himself contributed to this problem of perception, I think, when he was announcing the immigration, most recent immigration actions he took, when he said something very close to, I tried to work with Congress, I would have preferred to work with Congress, but when they didn't act, I had to, which suggested a kind of uh, augmentation of his authority once Congress had failed to act in, in what he considered a responsible way. That's not the way uh, the Constitution is structured. There's not, certainly nothing in the vesting clause, and I think this is true regardless of whether you hold a very robust interpretation of how much meaning is packed into the phrase executive power in the vesting clause or a very minimalist interpretation of it, that would suggest that in the domestic sphere, the, con the, the president can effectively enact legislation on his own because Congress has failed to confront a problem. Nobody believes that the president could, in, could promulgate regulations equivalent to those under the Clean Air Act if Congress had not enacted the Clean Air Act. And it's not a—so the president's authority, certainly domestically, if I could just restrict it to that, because it Mike says the foreign affairs issues are um, different to a degree, but certainly in the domestic sphere there's—, there's um, Nothing the president gains in terms of his authority to act in place of Congress that comes from Congress's failing to address a problem. It's one of the reasons that congressional dysfunction is so serious a question today, because Congress is absolutely essential uh, if you believe that there are areas of domestic policy that require 
substantial policy changes. Now, having said all that, there are a lot of laws that are currently already on the books that Congress has enacted, Clean Air Act being an example, that leaves lots of interpretive discretion to the executive. And it's certainly within the president's executive authority, the authority to execute the laws, to interpret those statutes so long as they're within, the interpretations are within the boundaries that have been marked out by Congress in ways that are consistent with his or her political um, philosophies about the best way to run the country. That's why elections still matter, even in the face of a dysfunctional Congress, because, in fact, presidents have lots of authority under existing statutes. And this, to a degree, is even more the case in the foreign affairs area, where the statutes tend to be uh, fairly broad in the authorities they grant, like the AUMF, the uh, Authorization of the Use of Military Force. But on the basic question of whether either one of these um, candidates are painting a picture of an unconstitutional presidency, I think it's hard to tell, because they simply could be saying, I'm going to use my interpretive authority to the maximum capabilities that I have, or they could be saying, I'm going to ignore Congress or act, go around Congress because Congress hasn't acted. The, the, one, the latter would be um, impermissible executive action, in my view. The former is standard modern presidency interpreting complex statutes in the world in which we now live. Thank you very much for that. Uh, the fact that both of you agreed on the ultimate contours of executive authority is not surprising if you read the interactive constitution where uh, Chris, you and Cypher Cash uh, agreed about an awful lot about the history of the vesting clause. And Mike, uh, you uh, also agreed uh, with Steve Vladek about uh, lots of the clauses that you uh, wrote about as well. It's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. I think our goal is constitutional education as citizens evaluate uh, the candidates during this important election. So I think I will ask you, Mike, are there uh, proposals that uh, uh, Mr. Trump has made that you believe uh, violate the Constitution? And what should citizens uh, look for as they evaluate whether his conception of the presidency comports with the Constitution or not? Well, I think there may be some proposals he's made to violate the Constitution, but I'm less sure that there are proposals that he's made that violate Article 2. Um, I think it depends uh, on what he means uh, when he says, uh, as you quoted him, um, that I am the only person that can fix it. Um, if, if what he means is that he is, is going to uh, uh, get Congress uh, to act and he's going to encourage, he's going to use his, his uh, alleged powers of deal-making um, to bring Congress together, uh, get it moving forward uh, in the direction that would be beneficial to all of us, um, and, and, and that he's the only person that can manage that, uh, then, then that's perfectly fine, because that, that's quite within uh, the, president's, uh, the president's role. Um, but but if, if what he means is he's going to go off independently and, and start addressing matters uh, that, um, that Congress hasn't and won't take up, then, as I said uh, previously, uh, I, I just think that misunderstands the role of the president, and, and I am much more concerned about uh, about his understanding and, and, and also Secretary Clinton's understanding um, of the constitutional role of the president, sort of as a general matter, than I am of any specifics. But but let me say um, one word uh, in, or maybe more words, but one thought in in response to what uh, Chris said about interpreting statutes, and all, all of which I, I really agree with. But I think there is a danger uh, in executive power, um, even if we uh, understand executive power, uh, particularly in the domestic sphere, to arise principally from things that Congress has delegated, and that, that we agree on that point. Um, but um, if the president uh, and his executive agencies uh, are, are willfully trying to reach conclusions and reach authorities um, that, that Congress hasn't granted, um, they use their power to interpret uh, statutes, which, which may not be clear, and even if they are relatively clear, you can find lawyers that will argue the other way. Um, if you take aggressive positions, uh, which may be ba barely permissible under the statute, but really not consistent 
with what Congress had in mind uh, when it passed the statute, when it um, made the delegation not consistent with what Congress wants the president currently to do, because some of these statutes are quite old. Um, so so you, you're, you're creating an enormous amount of executive authority nominally based uh, on a statute, um, but in fact based on an extremely aggressive reading of the statute. And then you combine that um, with the tendency of the courts um, to defer to the interpretation of executive branch uh, authorities, executive agencies, um, in interpreting the statutes that they're applying. Um, so you don't really have a check from the courts on these aggressive interpretations um, of the statutes. Um, then you may get in a situation where you're, you're looking at effectively uh, the president as a lawmaker, as a unilateral lawmaker, um, even though uh, in formally speaking, what the president is doing is resting upon uh, statutory authorization. And I think arguably that's the situation that we see um, with President Obama and the uh, immigration uh, situation, and that's that the, the court has uh, somewhat intervened against that for now, as, as Chris said. But I think that um, it, it, it may be the, the idea of the president being the one who's going to solve all the problems um, added to the enormous power that the president has uh, in interpreting open-ended statutes that Congress has passed that may get you effectively into a position um, of uh, unchecked executive power. Um, and that is, I think, why we should be concerned um, that both candidates seem to have uh, um, a, a general view of the president's role that, that is very expansive. It's not so much any individual policy that they've set forth, but it's this general idea that the president is the one uh, that is going to get things done. And I think that that is simply not how our system works, and to the extent that this the, um, the, the delegation to the president combined with very aggressive readings of statutes um, and, uh, um, and, and substantial deference from the courts may have created that situation, uh, and we should be um, very concerned about it. Thank you very much for that. Chris, the last word is to you. Uh, with Mike's refinement, uh, the question is, uh, do you believe that any of Secretary Clinton's proposals have violated Article 2 of the Constitution? And more broadly, what should our listeners uh, look for as they evaluate her uh, vision of executive power moving forward? Well, thanks for that uh, closing question, Jeff. I think I've got exactly two thoughts uh, to share, um, one on each part of that question. The first is, I think, at the level of generality and rhetoric at which presidential campaigns are conducted, it's going to be very difficult to tease out from campaign statements whether the presidential candidates are saying, I'm going to be as bold as the law allows me to be, or whether they're constructing an image of themselves that goes beyond the restrictions that are built into Article 2 in terms of the president's authority. I think Charlie Savage, if memory serves, circulated a detailed set of questions to the candidates back in 2008, I believe, uh, and got some illuminating answers from, from some of them. I don't know if a similar exercise had been conducted this time around with respect to their visions of presidential authority. But it takes some fairly cr carefully crafted questions and answers, which are not the meat and potatoes of stump speeches, to be able to figure out uh, what, the, what the candidates' views on the limits of their Article II authority is. Now, the second thought is, I do think that the structure of political campaigns, the expectations we place on presidents to be problem solvers the sense that Congress is not functioning properly feed into a perception among candidates and people who work for them that the president really does have to be aggressive in trying to deal with problems or else he or she is not going to get anything done. And the modern the vision of the modern presidency is a vision of people who get things done. Um, certainly that's the vision that you want to want to um, try to implement in your first term in order to gain a, a second term. And that creates a risk. It creates a risk that the 
limitations that are built into the Constitution in terms of restrictions on presidential authority are going to be pushed to the limit and maybe exceeded in contexts that are rather unlikely to be reviewed by courts often or when they are receive a lot of deference by those courts. So it's almost as if Madison's worry that it was the vortex of the legislature that tried to suck everything, all, all government power into it um, around the time of the framing has become flipped on its head, and it's the presidency that is trying to suck all available authority into its vortex. It requires a lot of vigilance, and it requires people standing up and um, objecting when uh, presidential authority is being exceeded. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a, a, um, a judgment we're going to be capable of making during the campaign um, because presidents do have lots of authority, and so it's and, and they are problem solvers within the structures that the government has created. So to hear them say, I'm going to fix it, could be an entirely appropriate um, gesture by a presidential candidate uh, within the bounds of presidential authority, or it could be reflecting a vision that he or she doesn't care what the limits are. He's going to go ahead and try to act, or she's going to go ahead and try to act beyond those limits, which is very difficult to tell on the basis of the kind of um, campaigning that we see today. Thank you so much, Chris Schroeder and Mike Ramsey, for an illuminating, uh, rigorous, and successful launch of this great new series, The Candidates and the Constitution. We will return next week with a special focus on Article 5, the provision of the Constitution that provides for amendments, and we'll continue throughout the election season discussing the positions of the candidates and the Constitution. Mike, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Same here. Thank you very much. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast and this great new series, The Candidates and the Constitution. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And I hope your favorite app app will be the Interactive Constitution, so download it in your favorite app store. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.